Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Catalaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketoleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketoleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emam in Shava Kiriathium, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Emishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedorleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshgal and of Anar. These were allies of Abram. When Abram, came, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back the kinsmen, Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskal, and Mamre take their share. No clapping? I mean, seriously. On that note, who else would like to sign up for Bible reading? Anybody? Anybody? I looked at that passage and was like, oh, I'm so glad I have a reader. <laughs> Thank you, Debbie. That is fantastic. <sighs> we, have to, uh, we have to read the passage. Um, every Tuesday we get together as a preaching team to uh, read the passage and uh, discuss kind of what we're seeing in it and what we've done in terms of research, and it was my turn to read the passage, and I'm pretty sure in there I might have sworn a couple of times, because Siddim is a funny word when you're trying to move through it quickly and getting caught up. But that will stick here, right? I can't say that down there, because that won't go well for me. Uh, we're in Genesis chapter 14. You can turn there. Uh, if you have your Bibles, that's fantastic. Um, something that you should know about me uh, is, should know, by, by God's grace, somehow I got really good at math in high, in high school. Um, I was a ter like a terrible, terrible student up until grade 10. Um, I cared more about uh, sports and 
um, doing anything but school, then school. But somehow, in the summer of grade 10, something happened, something clicked in my mind, and I started to understand what I was learning. Um, and so math and physics and chemistry and biology, they just were like, I just, I just got it for some reason. Um, and so uh, in that process, through grade 11 and 12, I, I got a really bad habit of not doing my homework because I just understood what I was doing. And um, it, it worked really well. I, I ended up on my grade 12 provincial exam for math, I ended up getting the top mark in BC, which is like by God's grace, because I did not do homework. And you might be tempted to sit there and think, oh man, that guy must be really smart. But that's not true. Because then I went to UBC and I took calculus. And I discovered that I really wasn't that smart. What I was is lazy. See, I, I took the class and I kind of understood it in my mind. And then I took the midterm. And I got 3% on my midterm. And I discovered, oh, math takes work. Math really takes work. Especially when you get to these, these levels. Um, un unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, Genesis chapter 14 happens to be one of those calculus-like chapters. Not just because of the names of the kings that are in there and trying to navigate those landmines, but because we actually have to put on a, a Jewish filter. We have to understand what's being written here from an ancient Jew's perspective, which is really challenging to do in the 21st century here. And so when you look at my title and you see A Tale of Three Kings, you might go, ah, yes, you were terrible at math because I counted four kings versus five kings and then another king. That makes 10. How is it that you only have three I'm going to say, I don't care about those nine kings, the five and the four. I care about the king of Sodom. I care about the king of Salem. And I care about a king that they point to. So there's three kings. So my argument is actually there's 11 kings in this passage. Hopefully, uh, I can prove that that's true. And if not, you can remind me how terrible my math is. So, first, let's look at the, the king of Sodom. So, re really, what, what we have here is we have this, this conquest story of these four kings led by Ketelamar who have kind of conquered this land. They, they subjugate these people to their laws, their rules, their, their way of thinking. And in, in a lot of ways, what, what ended up happening in this circumstance was... Um, you would have an overarching power who would put these other kings in place and they would strategically say... Okay, so we want this person to rule this area and we'll give them a certain amount of freedom, but we're going to purposefully create some animosity between cities so that they don't get too big. So King A, we're going to just talk so nicely out of his mouth out to him over here. King B, we're going to talk so nicely to him, but what we're going to do is we're going to put a little bit of animosity between King B and King A so that they fight just enough so that they can't gain forces and come after us. That, that's the typical situation. So when we see here that after 12 years of this, this kind of uh, regime, that these five kings, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and so on and so forth, get together and start to rebel against this, this ruler, we should go, oh, well, th this is interesting because, because what this is, this is a power struggle. What Genesis 14 here is talking about is, is power. Who is the biggest, baddest king around? And it doesn't take long to figure out that Ketelamar is that bad king. It's even though he's outnumbered five kings to four, he comes into the region and again sweeps through it all, destroys everything and takes everything. To the point where the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah and all of his people are running away in frantic manner that they're falling into these bitumen pits that are around in that area, running into the mountains. And here Ketelamar stands as King of kings. No one will defeat him. So he takes all that is rightfully his and goes back north. Now, Abram hears this from somebody who escapes and comes to him and, and hears that his nephew Lot is there and 
now gathers his troops with his allies and heads north. This is not some paltry little trip here. He heads 140 miles north and meets them at Dan, which is really the northern edge of what will be the Israel state. And at night divides his his men and sends Ketelamar's men into chaos. But it doesn't end there. It moves further in that they chase these men for another hundred miles to Damascus. And in so doing, you can imagine kind of this retreat happening and where they're trying to keep as much as they can and Abram's men are, are chasing them along the way and just essentially gathering everything that's left behind, all of the unessentials, those things that they had taken from these cities that they were like, now my life is more important. We are running away. And Abram spends the next hundred miles basically gathering these things to bring back. And then he makes the, the long 240-mile journey back to his homeland, back to Sodom and Gomorrah in a place where he can give back what he has rightfully taken. And, and really, when you look at this passage, you could take out this king of Salem, this Melchizedek piece completely, verse 18 through 20, and it would, it would read as a, as a regular story. In verse 17, it starts with Abram coming back after his defeat. And if we skip 18 to 20, this is how it reads. After his return from the defeat of Ketelamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshkol and Mamre take their share. See, this story makes total sense. The king of Sodom is defeated. Ketelamar is defeated. Abraham brings the stuff back and they have essentially a negotiation about the stuff, and that's the end. And what the, what the author wants us to see is that the king of Sodom is actually representing a particular point of view. And that is that there is nothing spectacular about what just happened. That it is simply natural. A greater power came and had dominion. Abram came and became that greater power and now, in regular custom, you would give back the people, but take the goods. So the king of Sodom is simply saying, what I see in front of me is what normally happens. This is the natural world order. This is one plus one equals two. When you do me a favor and bring back my people, you get to keep all the stuff. I'll take my people back, because that's customary. See, the king of Sodom is not, is not saying, oh, Abram, you have a great God. He's not saying, Abram, like the gods have seen, your, uh, have seen success upon you. He's not doing any of that. He's just saying, this is the way that it is. This is the cultural norm. Nothing extraordinary happened here. But, but you see, the, the author places in this Melchizedek guy right in the middle this king of Salem, to almost act as a foil to the king of Sodom. If this king, who's known for sin and debauchery and will later be destroyed, which we've already been kind of primed for, and all he sees is the natural world, what, what is the alternative? And so we have this king of Salem come along. Melchizedek. In verse 18 through 20, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be, the, be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. See, 
Melchizedek's message is, is polar opposite to Sodom's, the king of Sodom's message, which is, I look, Abram, at, at your success. I look at your military prowess. I look at the strategy that you used. You attack at night. You divide your, your men. You go. You run. You spend your resources. You probably lost men along the way. And I say, blessed be God most high. Because his blessing was on you, Abram. And the only reason that you stand here now with all of this stuff, with this victory under your belt, is not because of your prevalence, but because of God's prevalence. See, the, the king of Salem sees the world as being orchestrated, run sovereignly by God. As if God is in all things and works through all things and makes things work for his glory. And the, the king of Salem stands there saying, okay, I can see what you did. I can see how far you went. I can see what it cost you. But it is God who should be blessed because he has blessed you. And so we, we have these two kings that sit at polar opposite ends, one saying, let's just deal with what we have in front of us, and, let's, and the other saying, let's worship God. And that is exactly where we sit today in our current culture. The world around us, the news that we read, the science journals that are published, all work under the assumption that all that matters, all that's true, all that's good can be tested and is material and can be seen and heard and tasted and touched. And unless you start with that presupposition, unless you start with that assumption that everything is natural, then you stand outside of, of what is normal and good and right and, and intelligent. But, but scripture tells us something completely different. S scripture says that in all things, God is involved. From creation in Genesis chapter 1, when he breathes into man his existence, and he sets the stars in the sky, and he sets the rhythms of the, of the ocean, and the reproductive nature of ourselves and the creatures around us. And then when we rebel and we forget God, he brings a flood in judgment. So not only is God a creative God, he is also a, a judge, a, a righteous judge who brings wrath. And then, and then he, by his mercy, saves some, and they again rebel, and so he separates them in Genesis chapter 11 because they just want to be like God. And then, and then we have the, 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 the battle between Pharaoh in Egypt and God Almighty in where Pharaoh is lost. And we discover through the reading of Scripture that God is sovereign over all things, over all nations at all times. In the promises of Abraham to his dealings with Babylon, God is in charge of it all. When Israel is sent into exile, it isn't because of a strong nation that is coming to take their land. It is because God is coming against Israel. And even the king of Babylon, probably at that point the king of kings stood before his land and said, how great am I? And through his prophet Daniel, God said, oh really, you think you're great? Watch me make you small. And his curse was that he would be insane and he would eat the grass like an animal. And it came to be. And at the end of that time, King Nebuchadnezzar, this king who was above all things, said in Daniel 4, 34 to 35, said, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honor him, honored him who lives forever. For 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, the message of scripture is one of the king of Salem. And that as we engage in the world and the successes that we see and the challenges that come against us and the joys that we have, God is in them and working through them and using them to build his purposes for the future. But our culture says, no, 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 take things at face value. David, David Platt used to be, he isn't anymore, the president of the International Missions Board. And in 2016, when he was giving his, his annual address and kind of talking about what God had been doing in the world, he talked about uh, what was happening in Southeast Asia in an unreached people group where there was a few missionaries there who were preaching the gospel, but because it was an unreached people group, the, the language was an issue. And so they spent years learning the language and trying to discover how it is that they could, they could portray the gospel to these people in a way that they would understand. And once they had started to figure that out, they started to preach the gospel to these Southeast Asians. And people, became, people came to know Jesus. People... people we're like, well, this, this God is an amazing God. And so they started to bring their idols to these missionaries saying, we don't want these anymore. We want, we, we want to, to disown these idols and only trust Jesus. And, and a few days later, all of a sudden, these same people came back and said, um, can we have our idols back? Please, please we, we want them back. And, and the missionaries were a bit, a bit shocked about this. They were like, well, what's going on? And they discovered that in actual fact, their, their, their leader, their spiritual leader had died in those few days. And see, the, the, the Southeast Asian community had thought, oh, no, no, these are the spirits being angry at us for abandoning them and following this Jesus. And so we need to take them back so that nothing else bad happens. And the, and the missionaries had no idea what to do. So they, they, they said, well, can we see this leader? Can we go and meet this leader? Can we pray over this leader? And they said, sure, you can come. Bring our idols. <laughs> so they went. And they, they had no idea what to do. Here's this dead man lying on, the, on his cot. So they just started to pray. He said, God, we, we don't know what you're doing in this circumstance we, we, we don't know why this has happened, but God, would you, would you have mercy on these people and show them that Jesus is real? And this man who is dead lying there coughs and everyone is silent. And then, and then he coughs again. And now all, all chaos breaks loose. Oh my goodness, he's not dead. He's alive. And they resuscitate this man and people give up their idols and worship Jesus. And, and David Platt, as he's addressing this crowd, says this. He says, here's what I know. I do know that at villages like this, they know how to recognize death. Yet, even if he wasn't dead, God sure chose an opportune moment for that guy to cough. Right? See, David gets the idea. Is that it's not about whether the man was dead or not, although he, he was. It's about the fact that God uses circumstances to bring him glory no matter what. Now, is, is that something that you, that you hold in, in your heart? Is that something that you operate in life with? That when difficulty comes, when success happens, when chaos is around you and you don't know what to do, do you operate from a space of understanding, blessed is God most high who will use this to bring about his purposes, to make me more like Jesus, to bring glory to himself, to advance his kingdom, and to ultimately 
and is ultimately for my good? Or do we look at it and say, well, if only I had done X, Y, and Z, and if only he hadn't done X, Y, and Z, then this would all be different, and I could strategize differently and think differently and act differently. If I had worked out better, I wouldn't be, you know, if I'd eaten healthier, this disease wouldn't have come along. If I had, if I had just done this, my marriage wouldn't be difficult. If I had just done that, there, there's an element of that, absolutely. But where do we operate from? Do we operate from a space of the king of Salem? Or, or, or the, the king of Sodom? But, you see, that's, that's not even the most important part of this passage. And it's something that we don't, that we don't see. Because we, we read through this and we go, okay, yeah, there was this king. He was the king of Salem. He just kind of shows up. That's great. Uh, his name is Melchizedek, awesome. He brings some wine, gives a blessing. Abraham gives him some money, off they go. Okay, great, let's just keep reading. What's next? What's next? But a Jewish reader who, who read this would have gone, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Who is this guy? I, I, I don't understand how, how this works here. See, one of the things that the law talked about for kings, so when, when Israel had a king that was um, inaugurated, the first thing that he did, according to Deuteron Deuteronomy 17, was he would have a new scroll of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What God did and wants us to do, he would have that rewritten for his own personal use so that he could then study so that as he led the people, he knew how to lead the people well. He knew what to do and when to do it. He knew how to be wise because he knew what God wanted. So as David is doing, King David is doing his devotions, he comes across this passage and he thinks to himself, I'm sorry, I have some questions. This doesn't make sense. I understand God as creator. I understand him as judge. I understand what's happened up to this point, but now I have questions. And, and, and here are kinds of the, the questions that David would have. First, he would say, how is it possible that this, that this king could also be a priest? See, God has ordained that the priests come from the tribe of Levi and are direct descendants of Aaron. That's a limited group of people. But he's also made me king, and I'm, I'm of the tribe of Judah. And so my lineage will continue to be king, because I've been promised that. I've been promised that my throne will last forever. So that means that a king will come from Judah, and a priest will come from Levi, and how is it possible that there could be someone who holds both king and priest. But his second question would be, well then how, how, how is it that this Melchizedek is greater than Abram? Maybe, maybe you didn't catch it, but like it's, it's king of Sodom who has five allies, gets defeated by Ketelemar, who has four, which makes Ketelemar more powerful than him. And Abram has three allies. And Abram is more powerful than Ketelemar. And yet it's Abraham that receives a blessing from Melchizedek. And you would never receive a blessing from someone who was under you. You would only receive a blessing and give a tithe to someone who was over you. So how is it possible from David's perspective that this Melchizedek is greater than the father of the Jews? Like he is the pinnacle of Jewish history. God came and brought Abraham out, called him by name, changed his name, blessed him, was a covenant, made a covenant with Abram. How is it possible now that we have a character who is greater than this Abram? And then, and then his third question would be, I'm sorry, where did this guy come from? 
See, in, in a book where you start with the beginning of all things and then Adam is, is created and Eve is created and they have three sons and then you have and so-and-so was born and he begot so-and-so and he lived so-and-so many days and then he died and then he begot so-and-so and he had so-and-so and so-and-so and married so-and-so and he lived so-and-so many years and then he died and then this person had this person and this person and then he lived so-and-so many years and died. You would think that someone as great as Melchizedek would at least have a genealogy. This is where he came from. This is where he's going. But he just pops up for three, three verses and then he's gone. And David would go, how is, what is going on here? Who is this person, Melchizedek? What does he represent? And in his thinking, he started to recognize that God's plan was actually greater then this priestly covenant and this kingship that was established through David. And he pens Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. See, David sees this king, this greater king, someone greater than himself, and this priest marrying together. And this actually, Psalm chapter uh, 110, verse 1, is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. And Jesus uses it to confound the Pharisees. In uh, Matthew chapter 22, in Mark chapter 12, and Luke chapter 20, in all three of the Gospels, he uses this to confound them and be like, okay, just, I have a question for you. See, what you think is you think the Messiah is going to come from the lineage of David. That somehow you're going to be able to say, David begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and you're going to be able to follow this line down to the Messiah. But here's my question. How is it possible that David would call the Messiah Lord if it was his great-great-great-great-grandson? That's not something you do. See, in verse 1, it says, the Lord said to my Lord. So King David is saying that there is God and there is my Lord. And you don't do that if that's you're talking to your son. You do that when you're talking about someone greater than you. So somehow David understood, and Jesus picks up on this when he's talking to the, to the Pharisees, that look, the line of David will be complete, but that person is greater than David. That person is a king greater than David. And Jesus starts to point to himself as he opens the scroll of Isaiah and says, today this is filled in your presence. And as he makes his great I am statements throughout the gospel of John, when he says I am, he's saying I am, I am God. I am the king of kings. And that is ultimately what he is crucified for. But the exclamation point is when on day three he raises from the dead and says, I told you so. And now is seated at the right hand of God, ruling over all things. And sits as king over the entire universe. He is the king of righteousness. Which is what Melchizedek's name means. Melech Kedek. King of righteousness. This king, 
Jesus sits over all things and rules in justice and righteousness, doing exactly what is right and good and holy. And this, this reality should, should make us tremble in fear. See, we don't understand king very well. We, we have this kind of f functional monarchy and where we have this figurehead called the queen and she doesn't do much anymore. It's just representation, really. When we're talking king, we're talking absolute authority over all things. He makes the rules. He executes the rules. And he executes those who don't follow the rules. That's kingship. And so when, when we read Jesus as king of kings, we should in our souls tremble because of something like Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16, which says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, my, my question is, where do we stand in light of this king. This king who creates the world, who sustains the world, who brings judgment on the world, who takes the kings that seem like they know everything and control everything and makes them eat grass and then comes and dies and with an exclamation point raises from the dead saying, see, I, I told you what I said was true. And now he sits at the right hand of God waiting to bring judgment upon the world in righteousness. Not in unjustness, but in justness. Where do we stand with this God today? With this king of kings. This king of righteousness. Where do we stand? Well, see, I know that today... Outside of Jesus, I stand against this king. I stand as a man who thinks himself greater than he is, who holds on to his possessions more than he ought to, who thinks impure thoughts in his mind, who thinks that somehow all that matters is this world and that that's what I'm going to do, and so I'm going to make my own kingdom and I'm going to rebel against this king of kings and lord of lords and try and take my land and make it my own and do what I can with it. And so I stand today in a place where I should be fearful and trembling. But the beauty is, is that Melchizedek is not only the king of righteousness. He's also the king of peace. See, his name means king of righteousness. And the city that he governs over, Salem, means peace. Not only that, but he is a priest. A priest of God Most High. A, 
an office that was intended to bring the sinful people before the Lord and sacrifice on their behalf so that they could then have communion with God and God could be with them. See, the, ent- the entire Old Testament, these first five books of the Bible outline what it is to follow the rules of God and how it is that priests should be and how they would be cleansed and and, and clean themselves so they could then go into the Holy of Holies where God resided and plead on behalf of the people and bring sacrifices for their sins and their, their mistakes and their unholiness so that they could then be the people of God and have God dwell among them. When you read the, the, these five books, you discover that the way God designed the camp was that he sat in the center of it and the Levites were around it and then around that were these other tribes and Literally, God was among his people and the Levites were the, were the banner around them to protect the people from God and to advocate to God for the people so that this holy God wouldn't destroy these sinful people but instead they would bring sacrifices on their behalf so that they could be found holy and righteous before God. And so this this person, Melchizedek, is a king of peace, a, a priest of God Most High. And the author of Hebrews picks this up when he looks back through what Jesus has done on the cross, when he looks at his resurrection and his ascension, and he looks at the teachings of Jesus, he 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 sees this character of Melchizedek and writes these words. All of chapter seven is it. I'm not gonna make you read all of chapter seven. But verse 22 through 27 says this. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Not a covenant of Abraham, not one of sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. No, 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 a better covenant. Jesus makes a, is a guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. See, Melchizedek points forward not only to a king of righteousness who should be feared, but a king of peace, a a priest of God who stands before him and intercedes on our behalf, our rebellious behalf. While we're busy down here making our own kingdom, Christ is standing before the throne of God and saying, I've paid for that. They are holy. They are righteous and good. Your wrath was satisfied in me. So when I come in judgment, I come not against those who come through me, who trust in me. Always, Right now, he stands before God on your behalf in Christ. Interceding for you. And instead, instead of the righteous judgment we deserve, we have an advocate, a perfect advocate who stands between us and the holiness of God and says, they are righteous. They are mine. They are your sons and daughters. 
Now, Melchizedek is a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And that's why the author puts him in the middle. So you go, wait a second, who is this guy? Why is he here? Doesn't make sense. But you see, sometimes we get, we get stopped there, just at the greatness, the greatness of Jesus. And we just leave, we leave it there. But that's not, that's not Abraham's, that's not Abram's perspective. See, when, when he comes and he hears what Melchizedek has said in that God has blessed him for his glory and as blessing Abram, his response is twofold. First, he gives 10% to this priest. Guy who had nothing to do with the battle. This wasn't his stuff. But as a representative of God who brought a blessing for God and for Abraham, said, you know what? You deserve, I'm going to be generous with what I have. Here's 10% of everything that I have. See, when Abraham realizes that God is in and works through him to bring about his purposes, he says, well, then all that I have is yours. I can open up my hands because you will bring success. And we can see this, this journey for Abraham from chapter 12 through chapter 14. In chapter 12, we saw that, that Abraham saw the, the, the famine in front of him, said, I'm going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to use my own strategies, and I'm going to go down to Egypt. That didn't work out so well for him. And then in chapter 13, when God was gracious upon him and brought him back, he stands upon a mountain with his nephew Lot, and he says, okay, now I'm not going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust that this God knows what he's doing, so I'm going to give Lot the choice. Lot chooses what seems like the better land, and Abraham, in obedience and faith, says, okay, I'll trust God with this land that doesn't look so good. And then here in chapter 14, he says, no, no, no. Not only am I going to trust God, no, I'm going to say, no, I don't want any of your stuff. And I'm going to give of my stuff. Because I trust that God will provide what I need, when I need, how I need it. I can hold everything openly. But second, Abraham acts as a signpost. He declares to the king of Sodom, no, 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 no. This world, what you see, what you think has happened, is not it. And I don't want you to say you had a play in that, so you have all of your stuff back because my life, my life shows what God does. This, this king of kings, this king who brings peace and says, is, is an advocate for me, I trust that he will do what he needs to do in my life and he will provide for me because that's what he's promised. So my life, king of Sodom, is going gonna, is gonna to act like a signpost to the God of the universe. My life is going to look like all it is is pointing this way. Friends, in, in, in light of the gospel, in light of the fact that instead of God holding his just hand, his judgment hand on us as he ought to, he sent a great high priest in Jesus who is king of kings and lord of lords, who has power to do all things so that he could be an advocate for us instead of our judge. This should be our life's mission to hold all things with open hands. And secondly, to have our lives point to what Jesus has done. Everything that you have is from him. And it is, I'm not, and I'm not talking money. I, I am talking eternal security with God, relationship with Jesus, which pale, which gold and money pale in comparison to what we have in Jesus. Make, please, 
Make your life point to him. It is so easy to say, look what I've done. Look where I am. Look at the strategic places I've been. Look at how good a parent I am. Look how good at my job I am. Look at how good I am at playing the guitar. Look at how good I am at X, Y, and Z thing. Look how smart I am or how strong I am or, or how empathetic I am or how spiritual I am. No, no, no. No, no, no. Take all of that and say, look, look, at, what, look at what God has done in me. When I'm building my own kingdom, instead he has taken it by his grace and pointed to him. When I'm inclined to gather for myself and hold on tightly, I have open hands, not because I'm good, but because he's good. See, our goal as, as Christians, as those who have received mercy, is to point to that mercy, to point to that merciful God, that king who sits on the throne and say, look how good, look how beautiful, look how awesome he is, look what he's doing in my life. Is that, is that you? Is your life open so that when people look at it, they don't see success, they see Jesus. They don't see good parenting. They see Jesus. They don't see tenacious suffering. They see Jesus. That's the disposition of life when we, when we clearly understand who this Jesus is. King of kings. And high priest who makes intercession for us all. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I'm so grateful that you um, give us these rich pictures of who you are, even from the very beginning as you were building your people. You didn't uh, leave us to wonder, but you, you, you gave us pictures of who you are. Oh God, thank you so much that you are a king who rules on high, who has the power to do what he wills, and yet, God, you're a king, you are a king of mercy and peace who intercedes on our behalf. God, would that truth sink into our hearts and would that change the way we see the world? Would that change the way that we love people? Would that change the way that we make decisions? God, would we bring glory and honor to you as ambassadors of Christ to this world who so desperately needs you and to see these two aspects of you, God. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.